Welcome to Engaging History. My name is Christopher Kinsella, author of Chain of Deception. I'm a professor of history at Cuyahoga Community College in Northeast Ohio. My podcasts are not endorsed by any individual or organization. This podcast is my opinion and interpretation of the historical events that I will discuss. The purpose of the podcasts are in general to discuss American and world history in a way that engages you and explains so much of the country and the world around you. But I also discuss it in a way that is understandable and interesting. Thank you for returning to our continuing series on the second half of world history. In the 25th podcast, we looked at Hitler's ultimate military and political dream of launching Operation Barbarossa, the invasion of the Soviet Union in June of 1941. We then looked at why it is argued that Adolf Hitler planned the largest military pincer attack in all of human history, with the northern arm of his attack coming from Europe, the southern arm of his pincer driving east from another continent, North Africa, or the continent of Africa, meeting and yet a third continent, that of Asia. We then looked at why that military invasion ultimately was never successful and how he revised his strategy after that. We discussed Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor, bringing the United States into the war and ending with the arguably the worst and bloodiest battle in all of human history, the Battle of Stalingrad, where for every 1,000 soldiers entered into that conflict, only four came out completely unscathed. So in this next phase that we begin in our 26th podcast on the second half of world history, we look at the years 1944 to the war's conclusion in 1945. Remember again, remember though, please, that we have the luxury of being able to say to the war's end in a specific year. Heck, we have a specific date, both for when the war in Europe was over and then the war in Asia was over. But remember that at this time, of course, world leaders don't have the luxury of knowing when that war is going to end. There's no more rationale for why it would end in 1945 any more than it should have ended three years before or, God forbid, three years later. So again, the measures and the actions that world leaders are taking, sometimes in retrospect, can seem a little suspicious or perhaps that they were jumping off or jumping too fast. But remember, again, they don't have the hindsight of 2020 vision to be able to look back and know when something was going to end. To that end, the arguably the greatest event in all of 1944 would be that in the European theater known as D-Day, the Atlantic invasion or the invasion from the Atlantic Ocean through the English Channel of the Normandy coast of France. And before we even discuss Eisenhower, leader of the Allied commanders leading this front onto the Normandy coast, it opened up a third front. Remember that Hitler is badly exposed from his perspective, badly exposed in the East with his inability to subjugate the Soviet Union. The Allies are coming in from the uh, island, uh, the nation of Italy, 
from the boot of Italy and working their way north. And now he would have a third front opened only if the D-Day invasion was successful, which sometimes begs the question, though, what does D mean? Why do they call it D-Day? What, what does that D mean? Simply put, D means day. So if you really wanted to get fancy about it, although people could look at you suspiciously, is you really could say day, day, D-Day, because that's what the D stands for is day. Okay, then why do they say that? Only that particular battle or invasion had a D-Day? Not at all. Every operation that military commanders plan, a good commander knows that there's always the chance that your enemy is going to come up with the information, that somehow they're going to catch a glimpse of some information which is going to compromise your military plans. So D-Day was code. It was code for the day of the beginning of that particular operation. Well, you beg the question, when? There's 24 hours in a day. Exactly. That's why there would be an H hour of D-Day. And see, it worked like this. If Eisenhower told his subordinates to update their subordinates with the latest intelligence and latest information regarding the invasion, a conversation could be discussed, what they think is privately and securely, that Commander Smith, you are to take your forces in when D-Day begins, you will be going in the first wave at H hour plus one. You will be going to Omaha and you'll be going to Easy Red. The commander that is giving that information has to be aware again that the information could be copied and then released to the Germans. But if you think for a moment, the subordinate that was taking those orders and writing them down really doesn't walk away with any information, any more information than a potential trader would have heard, again, lurking just outside of a window, for perhaps of a, under of a um, uh, Quonset hut where these military plans are being discussed. All that subordinate knows is that my men and I are going in on the initial wave at on D-Day. When's D-Day? He's not going to know that information yet. He cannot afford to know that information yet, and Eisenhower can't release that. They just know to be prepared for it. When it begins, he's not going in right when it begins. Whenever it actually starts, he can look at his watch and know that I'm going in one hour from now. I'm going to be released somewhere along the English Channel. But when I arrive, my men and I arrive to the shore, we're going to be going into Omaha. Omaha Beach, a name that doesn't exist in northern France, anywhere in France for that matter. And as they're approaching the shore, if they were at Easy Green and they needed to get to Easy Red, then they would know they have to go right because alphabetically Easy Red would be left of Easy Green. So, or the other way around, excuse me. So that's the reason why they have these codes everywhere from the beaches to the time that they're supposed to invade. All of that, again, was to compromise the enemy from any intelligence that they might be able to pick up through spying operations. Please know that despite the overwhelming success of the D-Day invasions, we often tend to forget just how difficult it really was for Eisenhower 
and his commanders to successfully pull that invasion off to the point that Eisenhower thought it in their best interest to take another five-star general, that being George Patton, and put him further north on the continent, or excuse me, on the island nation of England to lead what became known as Operation Fortitude. I recommend at some point or even right now to, to pause the podcast and go to uh, and go to a search engine and just type in Operation Fortitude pics or images or pictures and go to the images and look at them. Perhaps you'll be as astounded as some of my students are when I show them the pictures of full-size airplanes that are being held up by two or three people, full-size tanks that are being held up by four people, other military equipment that's being pushed on its side by a single soldier, because all of them are fake. It's nothing but a series of rubber images that when the Nazis flew over, they could see on the ground the outline of a lot of serious military equipment that must be being stored for a reason, that must be getting built up for a reason. And that was across where Operation Fortitude was based, was across from the narrowest point of the English Channel which would make the most sense that that's where the Allies would be planning their invasion, when in fact they were actually many, many miles to the south of that. General Patton was also told to make certain parts, uh, certain uh, communications through radio waves so that the Germans could pick up that Patton was actually at that location. There is no way that the Americans and the British are going to put that five-star general that award-winning general responsible for anything but the most serious invasion, when in fact he was responsible for a completely false or falsified military camp. So we, the Eisenhower, had that going for him. And why, again, all of these efforts? Why waste how many thousands of pounds of rubber to make these fake models that essentially are of no physical use to the Allies? Because Eisenhower was smart enough to know that history was actually on Hitler's side, not on Eisenhower's side. As the world-renowned historian, the late Stephen E. Ambrose, wrote in his book, D-Day, as he wrote on page 39, quote, It was going to be difficult enough, even with surprise. Amphibious and operations are inherently the most complicated in war. Few have ever been successful. Julius Caesar and William the Conqueror had managed it, but nearly every other invasion attempted against organized opposition had failed. Napoleon had not been able to cross the English Channel, nor had Hitler up to that point. The Mongols were defeated by the weather when they tried to invade Japan, as were the Spanish when they tried to invade England, back in 1588. The British were frustrated in the Crimean area in the 19th century and defeated at Gallipoli in World War I, end quote. So in other words, again, Eisenhower was smart enough to know that if he was going to make this invasion successful, it was going to have to be with a massive amount of false information being spoon-fed to the Germans. But sadly, that had to be coupled 
with a massive amount of human life that he would pour in to the well-predicted bloodbath that it would turn out to be. To the point that it was estimated that two out of the three first wave of beach invaders wouldn't live. Of the first wave of paratroopers, three out of four would land already shot to death. That means, of course, the fourth that lands isn't, isn't in any way, doesn't mean that they're not injured, and they are landing solidly in enemy territory, attempting to try to make their way. Between the first wave of beach invaders and the paratroopers, Eisenhower was overwhelming the German resistance through the English Channel. And that, again, was just in the opening phases. Eisenhower was also smart enough to know of what becomes known as the psychological readiness of a human soldier. In a book called Wartime by Paul Fussell, he wrote that men in combat go through two stages of rationalization, followed by one of perception. And Stephen Ambrose writes about this in pages 48 and 49 of his book, D-Day. Considering the possibility of severe wound or death, the average soldier's first rationalization is, it can't happen to me. I am too clever, agile, well-trained, good-looking, beloved, tightly laced, etc. The second rationalization is, it can happen to me. And I'd better be more careful. I can avoid the danger by watching more prudently. The way I take cover, dig in, expose my position by firing my weapon, keeping extra alert at all times, etc. Finally, the realization kicks in. It is going to happen to me. And only my not being here is going to prevent it. What Paul is writing in that, in his book, Wartime, is that overall, when the soldiers, most of them pouring out between the ages of 17 and 19, pour out of those boats into the waters of the English Channel, making their way to Hitler's unbelievably reinforced fortifications, they have youth and bravery on their side they will be the ones to bring the Germans down. But as they wade through the water, and the water goes from the traditional smell of seawater to the smell of iron, iron, that odor, noxious odor all around them, from where? And as they get closer, they see that the water is turning from that grayish blue to reddish black. As they begin to swim through more human blood, than actual seawater as they work their way up to the beaches, horrified at the dead bodies in front of them, horrified at the injured bodies that they may actually be climbing over, horrified at the thought of having no other choice than to bring a dead soldier over them for cover as they attempt their way, make their way onto the beaches with absolutely no protection at all other than the single weapon that they are holding. It is obvious, and you cannot blame the average Allied soldier for realizing that the only way they're going to survive this is not being here. 
but that rationalization is actually what motivates them to get further onto the beaches so that they can duck in next to a sand dune, a tree, or a shelter that had already been bombed out by the Allies and abandoned by the Germans. They need to get to that point. That's the reason why in all of world military history, a commander can only assume that roughly 15% of his forces that he sends out will actually achieve the military objective that has been assigned to them. That number, that percentage, again, is how is explained by what Stephen Ambrose quoted in his book, D-Day. And while the Pacific Theater boys had to listen to Tokyo Rose, the D-Day boys had to listen to Access Sally. And her messages clearly made them nervous. Who was Access Sally? Most of my students heard of, of Tokyo Rose, but very few ever heard of Access Sally. Access Sally was the equivalent of the Tokyo Rose. She was a radio disc jockey or radio announcer who attempted to spew propaganda in order to ruin the morale of the invading forces back at their home camp. As Dr. Ambrose writes on page 55, sometimes the information passed on could prove disconcerting to the Allied forces preparing for the invasion. For example, Sergeant Gordon Carson of the United States 101st was stationed just west of London late in 1943. Axis Sally came on the radio. She was popular with the American troops because of her accent and her sweet, sexy voice, and because she played the latest hits interspersed with crude propaganda. Why fight for the communists? Why fight for the Jews? That gave the men a laugh, but they did not laugh when Sally interspersed her commentary with remarks that sent chills up the spines of her listeners. Messages such as, hello to the men of Company E. Hope you boys enjoyed your passes to London last weekend. Oh, by the way, please tell the town officials that the clock on the church is three minutes slow. Axis Sally had her facts straight, and hundreds of GIs and Tommies tell stories similar to Carson's about that clock. Fifty years later, the veterans still shake their heads and wonder, how the hell did she know that? Axis Sally knew it because of the double-cross system that was giving her the information. Axis Sally, also known to the American soldiers as the Bitcher Berlin, was in actuality, her name was Midge Gillers. Midge had wanted to be an actress, but had become a Parisian fashion model. It was there that she met a German, married him, and moved to Berlin. When the war came, she became a disc jockey, and that was how she was recruited to work the propaganda system. After the war, Miss Gillers was tried and convicted of treason. She served a dozen years in a federal reformatory. Released in 1961, she taught music until the age of 87, when she died in the year 1988, in her home state, in the capital of her home state, 
Columbus, Ohio. Midge Gillers was an American. So on June 6th, 1944, the Allies landed successfully on Normandy, France. The only real work that Eisenhower had to do that day was to light, write his letter of resignation that if the invasion was a success, it would be due to the countless episodes of bravery from the hundreds of thousands of men who invaded Hitler's France. If the invasion, however, was a failure, the responsibility is mine and mine alone. Arguably, it would be the loneliest day for General Eisenhower as once he gave the go-ahead, there was nothing he could do to pull his forces back. It truly was all or nothing. The Allies landed on Normandy, and in 13 and a half hours, they had 175,000 Allied soldiers making landfall, with an astounding 4,900 casualties. While the initial invasion was a success, it would be after that that the invasion would grind to a very, very slow advance. While initially Eisenhower, Patton, Bradley, and British Field Marshal Bernard Montgomery had predicted the wrap-up to be done by, by Thanksgiving and for the soldiers to be home by that Christmas would become nowhere near reality. As it turned out, trying to fight back the Germans from their entrenched positions throughout the European continent was proving far more formidable than anybody could have predicted. It is not that they, it's not that they underestimated Hitler. It's just the fact that they were not aware of how many of the bloody tactics he used to thwart the enemy's advances at every turn. On D-Day, for example, the, so the soldiers, the Navy, had to advance under the cover of darkness as quietly as possible. There would be no high speed moving from the coast of England to the coast of France. They would have to move agonizingly slow to keep the RPM of the engines down. And as they approached, the individual on the front of the boats had a long, long pole that they stuck into the water as they neared the coast of France. As the pole came further and further out of the water, they realized that they were on the sandbar and that's where the soldiers would be released and work and swim the rest of the way onto the beachheads themselves because the boats wouldn't be able to make it over most sandbars. So this is just a sad and sick, but very quick example of the type of thinking that Hitler had to protect his fortress. As the boats were advancing, the very first wave of boats, all recorded at the same time as they were parallel to one another, that they had reached the sandbar. As the poles again trying to release them into all the way into the seabed, they started to come further and further out of the water, meaning that they were making their way onto the sandbar. The soldiers then quietly slid off the fronts of the boats and slid 
right to their agonizingly slow deaths. Because as the soldiers landed on the sandbar, instead of falling in into the water with roughly 75 pounds of equipment on top of their own body weight, they should have settled into the sandbar no higher than the sand coming around their ankles. Instead, the sand actually came up to their knees and in some cases their waists, making it impossible to try to release themselves from it. As they attempted to push themselves out, they only pushed their arms into the sand until they breathed their last in a full out panic. This happened to an unknowable number of men who jumped onto what became known as Hitler's fake sandbar. The sandbar wasn't real. It was put there for purposes of deception. But again, that is just one of many examples that Eisenhower and the Allied soldiers and commanders would have to face as they worked their way towards Hitler's beloved Berlin. And the closer they got, the more intense the fighting was going to become because the closer that they were pushing Hitler's forces into their own supply lines and closer to their caches of weapons, ammunition, food, and potable water. That's what will then lead us to the other remarkable event in the European theater in 1944 was the beloved ideal being lost of being home for Christmas was the crude reality of the Battle of the Bulge. The Battle of the Bulge in December 1944, specifically starting on December 16th, was Hitler's last offensive operation in the Western theater. It was, of course, a colossal failure, but not before it would consume an unnecessary number, unnecessary number of thousands and thousands of Allied soldiers and his own soldiers' men fighting for a cause that could no longer be defended. But the fact that Hitler was actually still planning on a fence and carrying it out six months after the successful invasion of Normandy on D-Day, sadly just goes to prove how well fortified and his Hitler was and how disciplined his men were. Eisenhower and Bradley and Patton made the false assumption that Hitler would not attack through the Ardennes forest, which is exactly where he attacked from. That's part of the reason why the battle would take place throughout the remainder of, of December and into January of 1945. When, talk about guile, talk about false bravado, when a German commander realizing the last German commander in Hitler's ranks, realizing, of course, that he was doomed to defeat, actually demanded that the Allies surrender when the famous response of nuts was written by the American commander and laughed off. Except that the reality, of course, though, is that there would still be fighting and death for days to come. By the middle of January, the Battle of the Bulge was over and a successful win for the Allies. But it would still take over four more months to be able to slowly work their way into Germany proper. Berlin ultimately fell 
and Hitler committed suicide on April 30th, 1945, just 10 days after his 56th birthday. Nine days later, on May 8th, 1945, Germany officially surrendered unconditionally to the Allies. The war in Europe was now over. Now, notice that I said two things, that the war in Europe is now over. We're not done with the Pacific yet. The Japanese aren't even close to being done with the Americans and her allies yet. So that's one thing I hope you noted, that again, it's only the war in Europe that's over. That's why we call it VE Day, Victory Over Europe Day. I also said something else I'd like you to note. When Germany surrendered, that also meant Italy surrendered, which had happened prior to that. But Italy surrendered unconditionally. So did Germany unconditionally. And that's the exact thing that the new president of the United States, Harry Truman, succeeding America's 32nd president, Franklin D. Roosevelt, who died of a stroke at 1.02 p.m. on April 12, 1945, this new president is going to be demanding the same thing from Japan, unconditional surrender. And that very term of surrender is going to make, sadly, for a very long protracted war for months to come and the ultimate use of the most destructive weapon ever devised in humanity known as the atomic bomb, which we will continue in the next podcast. Thank you for listening. Please go to my website, ceconsola.com. Email me with any questions you might have, comments, or even book recommendations. And if you like what we discussed today as well, please leave me a review as well. Thanks again for listening. Have a great day.